This program deals with sensitive topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Michael J. From a very early age, music became the center of my world. But as my father always said, you don't choose music, it chooses you. This is Rock and Roll War Stories. This podcast has been designed to be listened to like an audiobook from beginning to end. The story isn't linear and will jump back and forth through time, but you'll be a whole lot less lost if you start at episode one and work your way forward from there. Also, if you've been enjoying this program so far, Please do me a favor and subscribe and leave a short review if you're so inclined. It would help the show immensely. Thank you in advance. Episode 15, The End of the Beginning, Part 1. If the best days that we'll know are just in the past, are we going to last forever? I want more best days. Lissy, best days. I am a musician. I am an artist. This isn't a job description. It's who I am. It's as much a part of my DNA as the color of my eyes. I am a musician. I am an artist. It's not something I can ever quit or give up or change because it dwells inside of me. It lives in every cell that makes up my body. I am a musician. I am an artist. It is a state of being, not a chosen profession. It is the core of my identity and my personality. This is what I will continue to be until my heart stops beating, until my lungs stop taking in air, until my eyes lose their vision, until my memory fails, until I take my last steps on this earth and leave this plane of existence, and until my spirit moves on to whatever is next. On November 10th, 1942, Winston Churchill said this, Now this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. But it is, perhaps, the end of the beginning. I believe this is where we are today. As of this moment in time, at this juncture in my life, I don't think any other quote sums up exactly how I feel better than this one does. This is the end of the line for this podcast. It was always ever going to be a limited series simply because I would eventually run out of stories, and that time has come, at least for the moment. Life will move on, of course, and more things will happen that will make the great of stories that are worthy of being told, I'm sure. But for now, we adjourn. I will liken these final two episodes to the grand finale of a fireworks display on the 4th of July. I'm going to hit you with a whole bunch of different things. So get ready. Also, 
as a special surprise and bonus for everyone who has listened to all eight hours plus of this podcast so far, there will be a newly remixed and remastered version of two Exploding Boy songs from the Communication is Dead record, which was our second full-length release. One at the end of this episode and one at the end of the next one. So, stick around past the end credits if you'd like to hear a little bit of what the band sounded like in full flight at the absolute top of our game and in our heyday in the mid-1990s. One, the only thing faster than the speed of thought is the speed of forgetfulness. I used to play a regular gig at a place called Mai Tai in Daytona Beach, Florida when I was living in Gainesville. This gig was arranged through a booking agency based in Orlando that I had signed with and was one of my longest standing gigs during my Florida years. Daytona was roughly a two-hour drive from Gainesville, and I'd do it every single weekend to play the 5.30 to 8.30 happy hour slot on Saturdays. One week, I made it all the way to Daytona only to realize that I had left my guitar at home. My fucking guitar. Arguably the most important piece of gear. How could this have happened, you ask? I still have no idea. I made a bunch of phone calls when I got there to some musician friends in and around the area, and I wasn't able to reach a single one of them. My window before I would need to be getting to the venue to set up to play was getting smaller, so as a last resort, I looked up music stores in the area. I called a few places and asked about cheap acoustic guitars. One place thankfully told me they had a Fender acoustic for $150. Fantastic, I said. Sold. Does it have electronics? Can you plug it in? Nope, but we sell acoustic sound hole pickups separately for a hundred bucks. Awesome. Also sold. I'll be there in a few minutes. So without hesitation, I bought the cheap acoustic and pickup and I made it to Mai Tai with barely moments to spare. The guitar was fairly miserable to play compared to what I was used to, and although it didn't sound or feel all that great, I was still able to do the gig. And, as a bonus, I thought to myself the following weekend, I wonder what the return policy at that music store is. I gave them a call and told them that the guitar and pickup didn't really work out for me, and they agreed to take both things back and give me a full refund. I can be a seriously crafty little asshole when I need to be. Two. If the shoe fits. To shift gears here a little, I was invited to perform at and attend my Orlando booking agent's wedding. He and his wife-to-be had decided that one of my original songs, called Beautiful, was to be their wedding song, and they wanted me to perform it at the ceremony. And I was honored. They also wanted me to do a short set at the reception, and they had hired a guy named Michael Glabicki, who was the singer for the band Rusted Root, to be the headliner that night. The wedding was in Orlando. I needed a pair of dress shoes to wear for this thing, and I decided to go with a little bit of a non-traditional pair of black Doc Martin shoes. Dressy enough, but also just punk rock enough to not cave into societal expectations. I spent 150 bucks on the shoes the day before the wedding, and I was stoked to have a new pair. I love Doc Martens. I've owned many over the years, and I still have several pairs of boots in my closet that I wear regularly. They never go out of style. The ceremony and reception were held at a beautiful house that belonged to my agent. 
They had a large stage set up in the backyard, and it was a really nice space for an event. In attendance were other bands and artists that were on the agency roster, as well as the usual friends and family members of both the bride and groom. I had booked a hotel room nearby and was planning on not only attending and playing, but sticking around for the celebration and enjoying myself a little bit afterwards. It was very rare that I did this kind of thing. I still don't really know how to relax well enough, but I'm working on it. One of the other musicians on the roster, a guy that I knew only a little bit, showed up with an attractive date that also seemed to be just a little bit wild. I only really noticed her because she immediately started hitting on me from almost the first minute that we arrived. So much so that I felt kind of bad and actually pulled him aside and asked him what was going on. He just laughed and said, Oh man, we're not together. She's just a friend from my other job that I brought as a date. I'm not interested in her at all, but I can see she likes you a lot, so go for it, dude. Now, I'll say a couple things here. I was a single guy at the time, and this girl was really good looking. She made a bit of a scene at the reception, and it was slightly obnoxious. It was a wedding, and shit happened. What can I say? I'll also give the disclaimer that I was rarely, if ever, a one-night stand kind of guy. I pride myself on the fact that I've been in more long-term relationships that have all lasted years than any short-term kinds of things. And when I've been in those relationships, I've been a one-woman guy. I know musicians get a bad rap, and men in general get an especially bad rap, but we're not all bad. And some of you are thinking, that's exactly the kind of thing a bad man would say. Having said this, I played at the ceremony. I then did my set during the reception. I watched Michael Glabicki's set at the reception. I drank a lot both before, during, and after. Michael and I really hit it off. He offered me weed, and we got high together behind the stage and had a really nice chat, and then things kind of happened with the girl from there. Weddings can sometimes have this effect on people, I guess. She and I went back to my hotel, and I will spare you all the details from there. When I awoke the next morning, I found that she was gone. She had just left without a word. And I hadn't even gotten her number. Much to my surprise, when I was gathering my things to pack and leave to drive home to Gainesville, I discovered that not only had she left without a word, but she had also apparently walked off with my brand new $150 Doc Martin shoes the ones I had bought less than 48 hours earlier. She was gone. They were gone. And I had nothing else. They were the only shoes I brought with me. I ended up driving back to Gainesville for two hours, completely barefoot. Go me. There was nothing I could do. I didn't even know how to get in touch with the other musician guy who had brought the girl to the wedding as his date and I sure as hell wasn't going to call my agent on the morning after his wedding to tell him the story and ask for that guy's number. I'm quite sure he had better things to do than to help me out of my pickle. Embarrassed, I did end up calling my agent a few weeks later after his honeymoon and telling him the whole story. The girl had made kind of a scene at the wedding. Everyone was aware of her presence and not really in the best way. She was clearly a train wreck. It was not one of my finer moments. My agent, however, could barely contain his laughter, and he found every excuse to make fun of me for it from that point forward. All I wanted was my fucking Doc Martens back. 
He agreed to reach out to the other musician and did a little digging, and apparently, as the story goes, the girl took my shoes with the intention of getting them back to me. She had called herself a cab to take her back to where her car was that morning, but she was still drunk and had also supposedly left my docks in the back of the cab. None of it made any sense to me, so I gave up. I knew I wasn't ever getting the docks back, and I couldn't even tell you what the girl's name was at this point. Definitely not a high point for me. Three, driving my life away. Here's another Chuck Wicks story for you. This is one of my favorite ones. For a while, Chuck was the host of a nationally syndicated morning radio show called America's Morning Show. He and the crew would often have me in as a guest to do something they called the 10-minute tune. Basically, a bunch of random listeners would call in and give their ideas for topics for this song. The hosts would decide on which idea would win out, and I'd get 10 minutes to write the song and then perform it on air. Of course, spoiler alert, through the magic of radio, the topic was decided well ahead of time, and the listeners were actually prompted to ask for certain things. There still wasn't much time to craft a little song, but it was closer to an hour ahead of airtime. And I had help from Chuck and the staff to come up with the funniest and most clever thing we could all put together. Chuck kept really early hours for the morning show. He would often have to be in the studio by 3 or 4 a.m. I'd have to go in by 5 a.m. sometimes to do the 10-minute tune. During this time, we had a full band gig booked with Chuck a few hours away. I don't recall exactly where it was, but the plan was that Chris Nix and I and the other band members would all arrive together and Chuck would drive separately and meet us on site just prior to the gig. When we all arrived, Chuck asked if possible that someone in the band agree to drive and or ride back with him to Nashville in his truck after the show that night, as he knew he'd be completely wiped out from having to be up and at the studio so early that morning. I drew the short straw and I hopped in Chuck's truck to ride back with him that night. He had just purchased a brand new F-Series pickup truck with all the bells and whistles. This thing was so big that it actually felt a bit like riding in a spaceship. It was really nice, and it looked really expensive. Once we were underway, Chuck said, I'll drive the first hour or so and get us to the interstate, and then if you don't mind, I need to get a little sleep, so if you could take over from there, that would be awesome. Sure, man, no problem. Chuck tuned his Sirius XM radio into a station with a mix of live club music broadcasting somewhere from Los Angeles. The music had cut-ins every few minutes. I wasn't too fond of the choice of music, and I don't think Chuck was either, but it was a perfect choice for background music for keeping us both awake. After about an hour or so, Chuck told me he needed to let me take over driving duties. We exited the interstate into a convenience store parking lot. We both got out, walked around the enormous pickup truck, and changed places. I climbed into the driver's seat and Chuck into the passenger's seat. We began pulling out of the lot to make our way back onto the interstate towards Nashville. Remember when I told you that Chuck really enjoyed fucking with people to make them uncomfortable? Well, he looked at me and said sleepily, I paid $75,000 for this truck. Great. Thanks, man. I wasn't really very worried. I had driven all shapes and sizes of vehicles over the course of my life, some very large. It just took me a little bit of getting used to it. 
It did feel just a little bit like piloting the space shuttle. Chuck was out like a light, and the Sirius XM club music pounded on. When we got to about 45 minutes outside of Nashville, I was starting to be lulled to sleep by the incessant pounding club music, and I woke Chuck up and told him I needed him to take over driving once again. We repeated the same drill from a bit earlier. I exited the interstate and found a truck stop to pull into. Chuck and I switched places once again. As he climbed into the driver's seat, he looked at me sleepily once again and just said, Thanks for going clubbing with me. I was exhausted and relieved to not be driving, but this really cracked me up. As I mentioned previously, Chuck is one of the funniest people I've ever known. We, of course, made it back to Nashville in one piece. Thanks, in part, to Four, Indiana Rain. At one point, I was doing gigs on and off with a regional country artist named Corey Cox. Corey and I met when I was playing with comedian and country songwriter Joe Denham and became fast friends. I would basically sub in with Corey's band here and there when his regular guitar player couldn't make it. Corey was from and based in Indiana. We would travel and do gigs in and around that state and would also occasionally make our way to Nebraska and some of the other surrounding states to do gigs. We even made it up as far as Syracuse and my hometown of Rochester, New York to play at one point. Corey also had some regular acoustic gigs in his home base of Pendleton, Indiana. On one occasion, he hired me for a couple acoustic duo gigs there on a weekend. I forget the name of the place, but it was basically Corey's home bar. The owners really liked it when Corey drank. They took a sort of sadistic pleasure in feeding him drinks to see how loaded they could get him. As a result, they also fed me an unhealthy amount of drinks over the course of the night. I maintained myself pretty well up until the very end when I felt myself slip into, uh uh-oh, I'm really loaded territory. We had made plans ahead of time to stay the night at Corey's manager's house, which was in a neighborhood almost directly behind where the bar was located. I was so drunk, I actually passed out for a bit on a booth at the bar as Corey was in the process of settling up for the night. I was a total mess. It had started raining during the process of loading out the gear, and by the time we had both climbed into Corey's van, we found ourselves in the middle of one of the hardest torrential downpours that I've ever experienced. It was raining literal buckets. Corey carefully drove us around the corner to where his manager Gary's house was. Gary was also a very wealthy attorney and lived in a really upscale neighborhood. Several minutes later, as we pulled to a stop in front of Gary's house, the rain hadn't let up one little bit. We both decided we'd stay in the van until the rain let up enough so we wouldn't get soaked to the bone on the way into the house. And I passed out again. Not sleep. Passed out, sitting straight up in the front seat. What I didn't realize was that Corey did the exact same thing. And we apparently stayed there for about four or five hours. Both passed out, sitting up in the front seat of the van. In this swanky, upscale neighborhood in front of Corey's manager's house. We both awoke to clear weather and bright sunshine at what must have been at least 8 a.m., As soon as I opened my eyes, I looked over at Corey, who had also just woken up. Both of us squinting in the bright sun, screaming its way into the windshield. 
He looked at me blankly and just said, Hey man, it stopped raining. We can go inside now. We still laugh about this moment all these years later. And I think what I almost find funnier than Corey's comment was the idea of some of the wealthy residents of this community taking their morning walks or leaving for work and seeing two guys both passed out sitting up in a suspicious looking van parked in front of what was probably a $700,000 house. We're lucky no one called the police. Five, sleepless in Chicago. For a brief time just prior to COVID shutting the world down, I did a stint with 90s alternative rock band Freddie Jones Band. Although it was short-lived, I really enjoyed the material, and I really enjoyed the guys in the band, especially original member, lead singer and songwriter Marty Lloyd, and Greg Goose LaPointe, their drummer. We toured together and played everywhere from Chicago, Connecticut, Denver, and New York City. It was a really fun time. One particularly memorable show was at the City Winery in Chicago. The band had rented a really nice Airbnb in a neighborhood close to the venue. This was February of that year, and in typical Chicago fashion, it was fucking freezing outside. I arrived first that day to the Airbnb ahead of the other guys by several hours. My flight from Nashville just happened to get in earlier. Goose and Rich, the bassist, were coming in from Denver and Marty from Los Angeles. I immediately noticed when I got there that the heat wasn't working. Nothing I tried would get it to kick on. After a few hours with no luck, I actually ended up taking a hot shower to try and warm up, and then I climbed into the bed in my room to use the covers to get warm. It was absolutely frigid. When the guys arrived several hours later, I informed them of our no heat situation. Despite several calls to the owners of the Airbnb, we had no luck. They wouldn't be able to get someone out there to try and fix it until sometime the following day. So we'd have to tough it out the best we could until that time. We weren't playing until the following night, so we ended up getting out and about a little bit to a restaurant for dinner. The idea was to stay out of the house until we all absolutely had to be there. When we got back, we all just bundled up that night. I slept fully clothed with a winter jacket, hat, and gloves on. The following morning when we were all waking up and getting up and around, all we could do was just laugh at how ridiculously cold it was in that house. You could actually see your breath. Marty and I had the bright idea of kicking on the oven in the kitchen and huddling around it for warmth. I have a photo of this moment that I will post on my socials for you to see. We quickly realized that keeping the oven on was not a sustainable solution. I think it might have been a gas oven, and it was making everyone lightheaded. Either way, after the gig that night, someone had managed to make it out to the house and they got the heat working. But it was seriously touch and go for a little while there. Six, somebody get this man a Coke. I will recount one of the funnier things that happened towards the end of last year playing with Jameson Rogers, since that's where we will inevitably end up in the next episode to bring things around full circle. 
We were booked to do a private show in Nashville opening for Dirk Bentley at a place called Old Red for the Miller Lite people who were proud sponsors of Jameson for more than several years running. Our bassist, Jimmy, whose actual full name is Jimmy Hendricks, had been suffering with some health issues during the last year or so. His health is his own private business, so I'm not going to go into details, but don't worry, he's okay. As a result of some medication he was taking, he would suffer from low blood sugar on occasion. This was all remedied fairly quickly and easily with a Coke. I recall one outdoor festival gig on a sweltering hot summer day somewhere out on the road when Jimmy disappeared off stage about halfway during our set. He kept playing bass and all, but was just gone. All we heard was Jimmy in our talkback mic mix on stage saying that he needed a Coke, a fan, and a chair. Our tour manager at the time got him all that stuff, and after finishing the Coke and cooling down just a little bit, Jimmy was back in action, back on stage, and was good as new. Flash forward to last October at Old Red in Nashville. We had just taken the stage in front of an absolutely packed room of very excited Miller Lite employees. People were shoulder to shoulder pushed right up to the stage, which itself was also really cramped because we were sharing it with Dirk Bentley's band. We were all practically right on top of one another. It felt really claustrophobic. Within 30 seconds of being on stage, Jimmy didn't look so great. He was sweating like he'd been sitting in a sauna for an hour, and he went white as a ghost. He was less than half a foot away from me on stage. When we blasted into our opening song, Whiskey Train, I mouthed to him, Are you okay? He looked at me, shook his head, and said no. I was quite frankly worried that he was going to pass out and fall off the stage. He looked like absolute hell. More than half of the people up in front of the stage noticed what was going on and began looking concerned also. Jimmy was looking toward our monitor engineer, a guy named Mitch, and mouthing the words, I need a Coke. Mitch was a relatively new guy and was not aware of Jimmy's health condition and was also not at the festival gig where Jimmy almost passed out in the year prior. Mitch, for some reason, misunderstood and thought Jimmy said, I need more click. Now, for those of you who may not know exactly what that means, allow me to explain. We use in-ear monitors on stage to hear ourselves and one another. In our mix during every song, along with the instruments and vocals, there's also what is called a click track. It's essentially a loud clicking sound that functions as a metronome for all of us to know where we are in any particular song. There are also vocal cues and countdowns for verses and choruses. Quite a lot going on that the audience never hears, actually. We also have what is called a talkback mic on stage that only the band members can hear in our ear monitors. You'd be surprised how easy it is sometimes to completely lose your place in any song, even ones you think you know by heart. The click track helps to eliminate the chances of this happening. It also helps the set to flow seamlessly from song to song, and it helps all the tempos to stay consistent from night to night. The level of the click track in relation to the other instruments in each band member's ear monitors is also adjusted to each person's particular taste. Our monitor engineer, Mitch, was the guy keeping track of all of these elements. So, for example, if we were doing a song and one of us couldn't hear a particular element well enough, we would basically just get Mitch's attention and tell him what thing or things we needed to hear more or less of, and he would adjust our individual levels accordingly. 
Sometimes if I needed more guitar, I'd just look at Mitch, point to my guitar, and then point upward. There's a sort of a universal non-verbal shorthand to communicate with monitor guys or gals during a show. You get the idea. So, to reiterate, what Jimmy was saying was, I need a Coke. What Mitch thought he saw and heard was, I need more click. So he raised the level of the click track in Jimmy's ear monitors. Jimmy kept saying he needed a Coke, and each time Mitch just turned the click up louder and louder in Jimmy's ears. This happened at least three more times. By this time, Jimmy was white as a ghost and looking sweaty and awful. And Mitch just kept turning the click track up and looking really confused as to how Jimmy couldn't possibly hear it. We found out later that poor, sweaty, white-as-a-ghost Jimmy, aside from being about ready to keel over and pass out on stage, was simultaneously given an absolutely punishing 20 full extra decibels of click track during this ordeal. Like throwing a brick to a drowning man. For reference, near silence is expressed as 0 dB, but a sound measured at 10 dB is 10 times louder. If a sound is 20 dB, that's 100 times louder than near silence. It was a comedy of errors on an epic scale. Needless to say, our tour manager quickly caught on and got Jimmy a Coke, which made him recover almost instantly, and the rest of our set went off without a hitch. Mitch finally realized what was happening and turned Jimmy's click down also. I'm sure much to Jimmy's relief. After the fact, this is still one of the most hilarious things that I have ever witnessed on stage, and all at poor Jimmy's expense. Rock and Roll War Stories was conceived, written, and read by me, Michael J. Follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Mr. Michael J. M I S T E R M I C H A E L J. Join me next time for another installment, and thank you for listening. And now, as promised, here is a song called Glass by Exploding Boy from the Communication is Dead album from 1995, completely remixed and remastered for 2024.